Good to be with you, and we're diving into Genesis, a large section. Won't be able to read every verse. I trust you've read it already, but I'll read the pertinent sections of it as we we move along. And when you're covering a large section of Scripture like this, you look for a unifying theme. It's not something we have to impose on the Scripture because we know ultimately the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is unified by theme, the theme of Jesus Christ and our response of faithfulness to Him and gratitude for His grace. So it's not very hard to find sub-themes as we go along too. And in the book of Genesis, we find this overarching theme that that it is uh, God's grace that is necessary to make us faithful. Brian, I appreciate what Brian said in his, his prayer that, uh, that uh, the, the stories of the, the, the characters of Genesis are they're full of disappointing things. And uh, the story ultimately is not about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but as Brian said in his prayer, it's about God's faithfulness. It's the only hope of any of us living a faithful life. At the same time, the Bible calls us to to respond to faithfulness with obedience. Holds us accountable for living according to God's will, according to his word. And uh, that means that there is a way to finish well the Christian life. And there is a way not to finish well. Fairly simple. There is a way to finish well. And there is a way not to finish well. And I presume that every one of us would choose. We we were, we want to say out loud, we want to finish well. The question is, are we pursuing a pathway now that leads to finishing well? A number of years ago, I was invited by a Sunday school class in my previous church to speak on this subject of finishing well. They said, Pastor, you talk often about finishing well. Could you come teach us about finishing well? There are a lot of doctors in that class, so I thought if they're asking me to come finish well, I wonder if they have my lab reports and haven't told me something that I need to know. Because uh, how do you talk about finishing well when you're now I could I could finish today, you know, no guarantees. But but how do you finish well when you're not aware that you're near the finish line? How do you how do you tell somebody else to finish well? So I, I, I landed on this idea. I had been in the ministry 24 years at the time and that I totaled up the number of funerals I had done. They were 58. It's not a lot of funerals for, for a pastor, but, but the churches I've pastored have tended to be on the younger side. So I'd done 58 funerals over 24 years. So it was fairly easy to go back through my records and review every one of those funerals. And uh, I noticed a pattern that there was a group of, there was a group of people I had buried, had the privilege of burying, and um, that I could say they finished well. And by finishing well, I meant they're obviously believers in Jesus Christ. 
recognized to be so not just by Christians, but unbelievers, and they bore much fruit. Obvious believers, they bore much fruit. That was the, that was the, the test I gave for finishing well. And so I went through those 58, and I, I started ranking them on a scale of finishing tragically to finishing well. Finishing tragically would be a zero, which is died without knowing Christ. I've buried few of those. And then scale in between, you know, one would be uh, maybe a Christian. And then to five, obviously a Christian bearing much fruit. There are a number of children that I've buried. I, I didn't I didn't put them into the into the exercise. But out of those 58, I, I, I thought there are 19 who clearly finished well. And 34 who finished otherwise. The majority did not finish well. Then I went back through those 19 and I said, what is the, What are the characteristics of one who finished well? And there are a number of things that they were not. Not all were wealthy. Not all had their financial affairs in order. Some of them were rather tragic. Uh, not all were, were geniuses. Uh, and not all had been Christians all their lives. Not all had lived uh, admirable lives for the majority of their lives. But they finished well. And then I asked, well, if these are the things that they're not, what are the things that positively characterize them? And I, I, I concluded, as I looked over and over their lives, that they, their lives really matched the fruit of the Spirit. The, the Spirit manifested Himself in their lives by the characters or the, the, the attributes of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all the nine fruit of the Spirit. Well, that gets us to this, these three chapters, and what does that have to do with these? I think that chapters 23, 24, and part of 25 show us three of the qualities of one who finishes well. Or they show us three things that we must do, and it's not too late to start, if we're going to finish well. Those three things I could pick out of the nine things of these, these 19 who finished well. I'd, and um, they are, according to your outline, they are, it, it involves stewarding death well. It means embracing life. And thirdly, I'm going to change that point to it means loving the next generation. Stewarding death Embracing life and stewarding the next generation. I noticed that in, in, these, um, in these men and women who finished well. Let's dive into the first one. Chapter 23 is the story of Abraham burying Sarah. Let's look at the first verse, beginning of verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. 
And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went, into more, went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will behold withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and, and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. But he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your present as property for a burying place. <clears throat> that may strike you as strange that I would say that, that, uh, that one uh, of the most important things involved in finishing well is stewarding death. Uh, but uh, that wouldn't be so strange to people of previous generations. People of previous generations, that is before the advent of hospitals and hospice care, were accustomed to people dying in their living rooms, of watching people die, of caring for them as they died, and caring for their bodies, and then mourning for them as a community, and walking with them from their homes to the church and to the cemetery so that they regularly realized death is a reality we all must prepare for and one we can either enter into with hope or hopelessness. In fact, the, the old world thought so much, the old world of, 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 um, of early centuries of Christianity, the old world thought so much about death that a whole body of literature developed called the Ars Moriendi. The art of dying. Records of the art of dying. These were, these were journals or poems or personal records that people kept uh, in which they recorded their thoughts about how they were going to die well. I mean, the closest we get to it these days is a bucket list, which is basically, I want to make a list of all the things I want to get done before I die. Nothing is necessarily wrong with a bucket list, but, but they were much more intentional than that. These are, the, these are the ways I want to live. This is the way I want to prepare. This is the way I want to think and meditate so that when death comes, I might die well. I want to die well, not because they were afraid necessarily of dying, but they wanted to leave a testimony of what it looks like to die with hope. And we've gone just the opposite way. We've said, I don't want to think about death. I'm going to put that off. I'm going to pretend like I'm young. I'm going to deny it. I'm going to spend any amount of money to keep myself alive. And I'm going to get my bucket list done. Um, and then death comes. And we're not ready. Or we face it hopelessly. We can tend to live, leave a negative 
impression of what death is. In fact, our whole culture is moving this way. Because I do funerals, I, I uh, ask funeral directors often, what's changing in your, in your world? I teach a class to seminarians about uh, doing special services, including funerals. I take them on a tour of the funeral home. I go do a backstage tour. I take them to the crematorium. I take them to the crematorium. I take them to the embalming room. I take them to the casket room. And this is what I hear from, from uh, funeral directors in all three places where I've ministered, and that is fewer and fewer people want any funeral whatsoever. In fact, upwards of 30% of the people are saying they'll call the funeral home and say, come get the body and just get rid of it. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to even have a, a memorial service at the cremation. Why? We don't want to think about death. But Christians, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we must grieve because death is still an enemy. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope. That's what you see Abraham doing. Abraham grieves. He mourns for Sarah. There's everything right about mourning because death is still an enemy. Abraham mourns. Uh, the, the, uh, Joseph, they'll mourn Joseph's death. Uh, they mourned Moses' death. Uh, they, they mourned when Stephen, the martyr in the New Testament, was killed in Acts chapter 8. They mourned, chapter 8, verse 2, they mourned for him. And, and why would God prevent us, say, that it's somehow unspiritual to mourn and grieve the death even of a Christian loved one if our Lord stood at the, at the tomb in John chapter 11 and wept over Lazarus, wept with anger. It's not because, I mean, Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but he mourned, he grieved that death, still an enemy, was separating our living ones from us. It's appropriate to mourn. But we mourn with hope. And mourning with hope means that part of our stewardship of death is to honor the body of the dead. Another tendency, another trend in our culture is increased number of cremations. Funeral directors are telling me it's not so much for saving costs anymore because it really doesn't save that much cost. But it's just to get rid of the body. Just because it seems easier. A number of people make arrangements to, to cremate. Maybe you've done so. I'm not passing judgment on you if you've done it for a loved one in the past. And nor am I passing judgment on you if you decide that that's the right thing for the stewardship of your family. But all I would ask you to do is just pause and think about it just a moment. And look at the examples of scripture of honoring the body as a as a drama, a dramatic testimony of grieving with hope, the confidence that this body given to us as a gift from a good God who crafted that body is going to raise it again from the dead. You notice how Abraham did this. Now, the particular Canaanite group that he was among uh, apparently had some te some uh, tradition of burial, but it wasn't common among Canaanites. The common practice among pagans was to to cremate, to burn a body. God elsewhere in the prophets 
tells his people not to do that. And, uh, but uh, here, Moses, uh, or Abraham is given an opportunity of taking advantage of a free burial plot. Oh, you're so, such a great man. Don't, don't, pay for the, don't pay for the property. I, I, we'll just give it to you. Everything about what Abraham does here is, is indicative of his honor of his wife, who though her soul had left the body and gone to heaven, that was still his wife. Abraham rose from his dead. There's no, there's no treating of the body impersonally. He rose from his dead and he said, I, effectively, I'm not going to bury her. I'm not going to bury my wife in a place that I did not pay for. Because she deserves to be honored, not her memory, merely her memory, but her body. Because God had God created her as a body. And, and God put his image on the body. And, and so sometimes we, in thinking that we're loving our, our children by making things easier for them, and we say we're going to be cremated, or we say things like, when I die, you take my old body and throw it in a pine box and toss some dirt on it, because I'm not there, I'm in heaven. And we, and we think that we're giving testimony to the resurrection, but let me turn something for you. Suppose your child said that about himself or herself. Suppose your child said, you know, when I die, just get rid of my body. Because I'm not here, I'm not there. Would you do that? That's the only way you've known that child. That child's body is the one that you hug. That child's body is what you would lay your life down for. And our bodies are created by our Heavenly Father. So we must not speak negatively and pejoratively about our bodies. Because our Father crafted these bodies. And we lay them in the, in the ground, gently tucking them in as an act of devotion. Not only of love to them, but in testimony to the hope of the resurrection and gratitude for a good God who gave it to them, to us. How did we get to this point where we dishonor bodies or think that they're somehow bad? We got it by, by a persistent sin that we fought in Christianity since the first century called Platonism. Plato, you know from your, your high school or college days, was a fourth century Greek philosopher, was not a believer, and he taught that uh, that that uh, whatever is physical is bad, and whatever is spiritual is good, and and so the 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 body is a prison house of the soul, and the the the, pur- the purest person is the one who finally gets rid of his body and shucks it, and so theology informs life, so his theology, his philosophy, which said the body is bad, you need to get rid of it, you need to punish it, resulted in the practice of cremation, which was. Take that body, burn it, get rid of it, and celebrate the fact that you're finally free of it. And Christians from the earliest days have been burying bodies. 
as a testimony to the goodness of God and the hope of the resurrection. They would go into burial heaps and trash heaps because in, in, uh, in, in the, the ancient days, the, only the, the important people had the honor of a cremation and others were thrown in the trash heaps. So Christians, their first act of evangelism was to go into the trash heaps and I mean, they were picking up babies for one, but they were also picking up dead bodies. Christians were going into the burial, the trash heaps, and picking up dead bodies, not just of Christians, anybody. They would pull them out, they would clean them, they would drape them in white, and they would give them an honored burial. This was, this was so powerful, made such a powerful impression on a culture of denial, of, of di- denying death. And hating the body. It was such a powerful testimony that Julian the Apostate, the emperor who tried to turn the Roman Empire back to paganism from Christianity. Julian the Apostate said, I cannot make progress against these Christians for three reasons. Number one, their care for the poor. They're taking care not only of their own poor, but our poor too. I can't make any progress against these Christians. I can't make any progress against these Christians because they're, they're too honest. They're honest in their business dealings. They're honest in their interpersonal dealings. I can't, I can't, I can't take anything away from them because people, people go to them for commerce because they're so honest. And the third reason I can't make any progress against them is the way they treat the dead. Oh, if the Lord would allow us to regain a testimony in this culture. As much as we want to stamp out those Christians, we can't because they, the way they honor and treat with dignity the dead, the way they face death intentionally and with courage because they don't wait to the final moment to think about it. Well, the first um, thing that we must do is steward death by mourning with hope and honoring the body and burying by faith, and then I'm short of time, so I'm going to run on to the second point, which is embracing life. That's in chapter 24, the story of, of uh, Sarah's burial is superseded by this, or, or is succeeded by the story of finding a, a wife for Rebecca. Now, Abraham in burying Sarah was uh, giving testimony to not only that the promised land was going to be his, that that promised land was going to be the site where the Messiah would come. And it is in that place that the resurrection of the dead would occur, including Sarah. He was a man who had been transformed in his faith. He was a man living by faith. He's not a man who was uh, naturally a faithful man. He is one who had been made faithful by God. You've studied enough of Genesis now to know that. Abraham didn't start out so well. He's called from Ur of the Chaldees. He gets bogged down in Haran because he just has so much stuff with him. And then God has to call him again from Haran and he starts moving all that stuff. And, and then uh, he lies about his wife a couple of times. He runs down to Egypt because he's afraid of the famine. He's, 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 not, a, he's not an exemplar of faith. But by chapter 2, God, 22, as you studied last week, God has transformed Abraham over a number of years. God has transformed Abraham to the point 
that when God calls him to sacrifice Isaac, he without any question heads to the mountain, straps Isaac to the altar. And without any revelation of of resurrection up to that point, concludes that if God has made covenant promises through his son Isaac to make his descendants as numerous as the stars, well, there's only one thing to conclude. God's going to raise him from the dead. Never heard of resurrection before, but he was so convicted, he was so convinced of God's faithfulness to his promises, he was willing to put a knife to the chest of his son in full confidence that God would raise him from the dead and carry on his covenant promises. And then confident of the resurrection such that he could tuck his wife into the ground. And now in in chapter 24, it's time to find a wife for Isaac. It's going to be very difficult to have as as many descendants as the stars of the sky if Isaac doesn't have a wife. And so Isaac has to have a wife. And Isaac has to have a wife who is from among God's people. God sends Eliezer, um, uh, Abraham sends Eliezer, his servant, to find a wife for Isaac and says, don't find her among the Canaanites, not because he forbids uh, marriage to other ethnicities. God does not forbid marriage to other ethnicities now, nor has he ever. There's lots of marriage to others. There's numerous instances of of God's people, the Jews, marrying those of other ethnicities. Moses' wife was a Cushite, and and a number of Egyptians left Egypt and married Jews. What the point was, was I want you not to go among these pagan Canaanites uh, who worship other gods. I want you to find a believing wife for my son, because we are preserving the line through which the Messiah will come. That's why the careful instructions are given for him to go among God's people. And the one thing I want you to see that will help you to finish well is, is that is, is Abraham's attention to finding a wife for his son is testimony to how much God loves you. Abraham's, God's, God's attention to finding in a wife from, for Isaac is testimony that God loved you and me long, long before we were ever born. How so? Because God's purpose in getting a wife for Isaac, Abraham's purpose for getting a wife for Isaac was not just so that his boy would marry well. Not just so that he could have some grandchildren around the table. His purpose was that the Messiah had to come. And this must be a believing wife because we have to, we have to pass the faith on to children who will believe, who will keep the covenant, and through whom the Messiah would come. If Abraham had not shown care for the wife of Isaac then, humanly speaking, the Messiah would not have come and you and I would not be studying these blessed promises of Scripture today. God's instructions for Abraham to find Isaac a wife from among believers is a testimony to the fact that God is preserving you. What will help you rise up, wake up in the morning and embrace life and 
and get on the path of finishing well, it will be the confidence that God has been looking out for your and my good from the foundation of the world. If he's been if he's been caring for you and me from before the foundation of the world, then why will he not care for us today? Despite the fact that you and I are can tend to think, I think God's forgotten me. I think God is I think God is ignoring me. God has been doing good to you and me from the foundation of the world when he chose to give up to he decided to give up his son for us and to accomplish that historically by bringing him through the line of Abraham. Second thing I want you to see in this passage, not just preservation, which will help you preservation by God's providence, which will help you uh, embrace life, but the importance, the need of cooperating with God's providence. Let me just read uh, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 24. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor, made the camels kneel down outside the city, and he prayed, verse 12, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Now let me back up and tell you that in the first nine verses, uh, Eliezer is arguing with Abraham and said, what if it doesn't work? What if I can't find a wife? And Abraham says, you go anyway. Well, then Eliezer doesn't just say, well, he said, go. I'm just going to go and see what happens. He stops and he prays. He knows that God, he knows from his master that God is sovereign but he also takes the time to pray, to say, guide me and show me. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Lord, you might hear him say it this way. Oh, Lord, I got to come back with a wife for Isaac. I don't know how to pick her. I don't know how we're going to find her. So please do this for me, Lord. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. We might call that putting out a fleece. Lord, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. Help me make it clear. My point there is, and I'm going to race on to, to finish uh, here in a few minutes, but the point here is that not only must you live in the confidence that God has always been about the work of maintaining his faithfulness through his people and has been working on your behalf long before you were born, but you and I must enter faithfully into that. God has prepared in advance good works for us to do, but we must do them. We must make, we must avail ourselves of the means of grace. Praying like Eliezer did. Studying his word like you are here today. Let me, let me share with you one other thing that I noticed about each of these 19 who finished well. Every one of those 19 who finished well. Every single one of them. Not only worshipped weekly but morning and evening. 
Now, does it mean that they, does it mean by going to church weekly and worshiping morning and evening while you check off those boxes and God will have to, he owes you reward? No. It's just what happens when you pack, practice good nutrition. You'll have a higher quality life on the whole if you eat well, take care of your body and so forth. And the same is true of your soul. You spend more time at the lake or on the golf course, even with grandchildren, even with other churches all around the country. than you do weekly in your own church, opening and, and closing the Sabbath day with worship. The nutrition, the malnutrition will show. So it means embracing life well means living in that confidence of God's sovereign preservation. But it also requires cooperation. And then, of course, we have the confidence that God will orchestrate everything for the praise of his glorious grace. I want to close with the final point, which is a quicker one from chapter 25, and I'm really dipping in. I'm transgressing against my next brother who will preach uh, or teach this, but uh, <clears throat> I just can't help it. Verse 12, chapter 25. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. And then there's a record of those born to him. And then verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Loving the next generation well. This. The book of Genesis is organized around this word that we have translated generations. In Hebrew, it's, it's toledoth. Toledoth. And there are ten toledoths. There are ten generations. This is the record of. There are ten of those. And they, they form the, the spinal column or the vertebrae for the book of Genesis. There are ten of them. And each one tells us something about the person. In the first one, it's the, it's the, it's the toledoth of the heavens and earth. And so it tells us the story of the heavens and earth. But, but the rest are about people. And it tells us either by by um, mention or lack of mention whether or not the person finished well. If there is a toledoth, the person finished well. If there is not a toledoth, the person did not finish well. In, in, in the technical terms of studying Old Testament literature, we call it they're gapped. You're either mentioned or you're gapped. So let me give you an example. Now, the Toledoth is named for your father. The Toledoth about you is named for your father. So, so this is the Toledoth. This is the record of the generations of, of, of uh, Terah. And then what happens? All of these stories about Abraham follow. And all the good, bad, the ugly. But... The story, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of information about Abraham because he finished well. And then there's the, there's the, uh, the, the Toledoth, the, the record of the generation of Jacob. And that's about Joseph. A whole lot of material on Joseph. 
Joseph finished well. Now, I read here that um, the, this, the, 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 um, the lineage of Ishmael, there's no story about Ishmael, and the lineage of Isaac, there's no story about Isaac to, to speak of other than, you know, the putting the wool on and that sort of thing. That means that there is no Toledoth for Abraham. There is no, you know, we, we have, here is the Toledoth for Terah and all this long story about Abraham. But there is no long story about Isaac. Why? All we have of Isaac is this. Isaac is on his, we think it's his deathbed. It's really not his deathbed because he goes on to live another 20, 80 years. He's, he's pouting is what he's doing. He's pouting because he doesn't have venison. And so he effectively says, I am going to love and bless my favorite son Esau because he brings me venison. He brings me wild game. We really have the story of a fat, indulgent, self-absorbed man named Isaac who says, I love my son Esau better because he brings me tasty meat. And the only reason the blessing goes to Isaac as it should is that God sovereignly takes one of Isaac's hands and puts it over the other and forces him to bless his son Isaac. I mean, Jacob. It's a sad ending. Isaac did not finish well. And God tells us that by gapping him. When he could have been a covenant father and by loving well, his sons produced perhaps a different Jacob than the one who spent so much of his life deceiving and a different Esau who lived by violence. God in his sovereignty overruled and recaptured Jacob. The end, but after a lot of devastation. The other thing I've noticed about these 19 who finished well is that they loved the next generation. They did not sit in their own self-pity and say, I just can't believe how this world is going. I don't like what's happening around me. I don't like sharing my space with people who don't look like me, don't like like me. I don't, love, I don't like learning ways that I can be of service and worship with young people. I just want this world to bend toward my prejudices and my indulgences and let me have things the way I want them and keep me comfortable until I die. Those people don't finish well. But those who say, my reason for being kept alive on this earth is to pass my faith on to the next generation. And I want to die falling forward, pointing that way. 
and loving gently and warmly and generously those who come after me, not just my children and grandchildren, but all the next generation. Don't you want to finish well? I believe you do, because I look around the room, I see many who are. Please, don't let that, that Isaac corruption creep into your soul. Rob you of the pleasure of finishing well. Rob us of a legacy. As a next generation of saying, they marked the way for us. They remained those pliable palm trees to the very end. Showing us the way of faith and the promised land. Not living for themselves, but for others. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these men who rise early every Thursday in order to give themselves to the study of your word. I look around this room, I see many who are, are finishing well. And they're putting that word into practice. And they're living vigorously for the kingdom of God. They're living flexibly for the kingdom of God. They're pointing forward to the next generation. They're living with confidence in a sovereign God. And they're, and they're I trust, thinking about how they might die well and point with hope to the coming resurrection. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would freshly call us to finish well. I pray for those who don't know Christ in a personal way, either gathered here or in the sound of, within the sound of my voice, that this would be the day of their salvation. It's not too late as long as they're breathing. It's not too late to give their lives to Christ, and it's not too late to start living for him today. We pray that you dismiss us with your peace and power In Jesus' name, God's men said together, amen.